0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest today is Mukti. Mukti, whose name means liberation, is a teacher in the lineage of Adyashanti, her husband. And incidentally Mukti, on your Skype name it says Mukti Mukti, so I guess that means Mukti squared, which means like a whole lot of Mukti. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Together, she and Adyashanti founded the Open Gate Sangha in 1996 to cultivate the awakening of consciousness in those who yearn for truth, peace and freedom. In teaching, Mukti brings flavors of feminine quietude and nurturing as well as kinesthetic, visual and precise pointers to truth. Many speak of her being particularly gifted in her offering of guided meditations. Her keen interest as a teacher is in revelation of consciousness, touching and transforming human experience. She is licensed in acupuncture and certified in yoga instruction. And um, her website, which contains sample teachings, audio clips and downloads, further information is muktisource.org, although that redirects to a subsection of the adyashanti.org website. but No problem with that. All right, so here we go. Here go. Um, Here we go. I imagine we'll be talking about all the usual interview type stuff, you know, your spiritual background and your awakening and what you teach and, and uh, things like that. But I thought I'd, just for fun, start by asking you a question you may not have gotten in interviews, which is, what question or concept most inspires and interests you these days? What do you find yourself thinking about when you're walking the dog or something that just really kind of lights your fire?
1: That's great. I love it. Well, it really interests me lately. I'm I'm going to try to put this into words because sometimes when something captures our imagination, you know, we're with it for a while and, you know, um, almost like a wordless contemplation. I've just been kind of chewing on it. So we'll see it. We'll see how it, how it comes out in words. What I've noticed is um, I work with some people either ongoing or in private meetings or who I come up upon when I'm giving public satsang, who have had significant awakening experience, not that awakening is ultimately experienced but they've had awakenings and they've lived with them for some while and there seems to often be a kind of period where they're carried by the profundity of that and then there's um, often times on the heels of that that things come up in their psyche that are challenging. And what it feels like is that if I were to put an image on it, you know, ultimately I can't know. But what it feels like is that the parts of ourselves that are are not clear or are less refined or are seeking their liberated state, sense the, the ground has been prepared through those awakenings to prepare the person for a level of awareness, openness, availability for that content to arise. And um, what I really, really chew on a lot is how to meet that in a way that's that's truly and deeply transformative. And I think that what happens for a lot of people who have been in spiritual circles for a long time is they have their tools in their toolbox, as Audrey would say, where they they know certain inquiry questions that have worked really well for them. They know meditation techniques that have served them. Maybe they know physical things that help them, whether it's exercising or doing Qigong or whatever. But what are some of the most effective ways of being with that content that maybe isn't just one thought to look at or isn't just one energetic sensation in the body or one emotion? Because... It's content that is like, has many strands that reaches into many dimensions of their person. And so to just tackle them with one tool that's to look at the thought or to look at the emotion may not really address it at its root. And when I studied Chinese medicine, they talked about treatment principles where you either treat the branch symptoms or the root cause. And sometimes it's the correct time to treat the branch, like it's an acute situation. You know, sometimes you have the luxury of not having acute situations and you can actually address the root. So that's what I contemplate is, you know, how to really address that root. And it's different for every person. And yet there seems to be some commonalities. And so, so I, I look for those commonalities, I look for how to speak to them uh, speak to those commonalities when I'm giving talks or when I'm working with people and then I'm, I'm really a student of all of the particulars and uniquenesses of everybody and I'm constantly learning how to adapt what I see as common and not work formulaically but work individually to really address the what is particular and unique to each person
0: cool let me just reiterate what I think you just said to make sure I understood it and to help the audience understand it. So what you're saying is that very often a profound and genuine awakening can precipitate some sort of release of stuff that has been kind of lodged in our psychology or in our physiology. It's it's as if it shakes the tree and and fruit starts to fall or something. People might sometimes be unprepared for that and be seeking methods to facilitate and smooth out the release that seems to be um, taking place. And you're saying that perhaps, you know, maybe Chinese medicine or Ayurveda or yoga or maybe some kind of psychological modalities could be brought into play in order to smooth the, the transition that the person is undergoing. Is that what you're saying?
1: I think I could springboard from your summary and just say what I was especially highlighting is that when people have tried those things that you mentioned, which are fantastic, I'd recommend them, that sometimes they reach a point where they try to reach in their toolbox and there's no one modality or one approach that's addressing the complexity of what's arising. So that's what I'm really interested in is how to address the complexity in a way that's
0: Truly transformative, really. Can you give us an actual concrete example of somebody that that went through something like this? Yeah,
1: I would love to, but if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to backtrack and just mention a, a piece of your, speak to a piece of your summary, which is what I'm speaking about doesn't necessarily only present on the heels of awakening, but what I see is that the content that arises within people who have had awakening is sometimes material that has been so unconscious or so root in its structure that it can surface more apparently or more in totality when there's that space and conscious awareness that that material almost feels like it Registers and it's like, oh, now I can finally come up like this deep unconscious material or these these core um, workings in my ego structure can come up perhaps more readily on the heels of awakening. But there's signs of it, you know, all along, whether there's awakening or not. So anyway, I just wanted to speak to that.
0: Do you think it would be fair to say that awakening can act like a a powerful solvent, and before awakening, there can obviously be releases and. Purges and whatnot of things that are bottled up, but that if a, if a more radical or profound awakening takes place, it it's really a powerful solvent. And and in the face of that, or in the context of that, it's very likely that things are going to begin to be released because they're just they just don't belong. in the I mean, the, the physiology, you could say, can't so easily support that awakening if it has this, that, and the other thing yes, clogging yes. clogging it up. And so those. You know that the awakening is going to be like a solvent, and and the stuff is just going to start dissolving more with with a greater pace than it might have before.
1: Yes, yes, I really agree with the sense of what you're describing. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. So, uh, I mean, that's what I found. Could you help me trace back to the question you wanted me to answer? Um, <laughs> let's see if we can call it back up. Probably the audience would know, but uh, they don't have microphones. So yeah.
0: Let's, well, let's... we'll get around to it. So. Is it your experience that sometimes these releases or the, the the issues that one begins to confront, they become even more critical in a way after an awaking, that the sort of intensity of the release has to be dealt with more urgently? There's a lot more shit hitting the fan, so to speak, than... Before awakening, and of course, we're generalizing their exceptions to every generality, and uh, so that's why you consider this such an important issue. There's a lot of people dealing with this stuff that may not. Oh, and I know what it was the, the thing you wanted to get back to because in my summary, I was mentioning this, that, and the other thing, Ayurveda, and, and what that yeah, might, yeah. might be helpful. And you were saying, Yeah, but those are the kind of the usual tools that it might be necessary oh, to go was, yeah. to a more root level, uh, yeah. you know, to really deal with it. And I also asked for an example, so that's our summary, yeah.
1: Okay, great, great. So you want me to go for the example now?
0: Sure, whatever comes to mind. <laughs>
1: okay, uh, okay, great. Well, let me see what does come to mind. I'm just gonna give it a minute. Mm-hmm. For some reason, an example isn't coming, but I can tell you the feel of what I'm talking about a little bit more. Okay. Adya, for example, has has it in some in some years past, and maybe in present as well. Sometimes he'll talk about a person's core story and, and other teachers have addressed this too, maybe like a core core identities and they may map them to systems you know, like the Enneagram or different things. And so sometimes there's a way that we organize around a certain construct and that construct feels familiar as to how we know ourselves. You know, I mean, maybe it's the helper, you know, maybe it's the protector, maybe it's um, Um, people who could probably name a million of them right now, but there's different names for them, but it's not always so simple as like one label because um, we're holistic human beings. And so um, we may have had certain experiences that we want to repeat or certain experiences that we don't want to repeat. And those may play into our behaviors and kind of layer upon how we organize and we may find ourselves in certain situations where maybe there's certain triggers that that go off and they may feel unrelated to that core organizing identity or core story as Aadya has called it and so it may not be as simple as people like to make it there's a way that in spirituality people love to be simple when it comes to what they want to latch on to to feel comfortable. Like, I know what this is, you're a whatever, you're a two on the Enneagram and this is how you need to solve that and address it. You know, or I know what you need to do with that thought. You know, you need to ask if it's true or whatever it is. And people love that because there's great comfort in having black and white structures like that, that you can just, you know, move through. But sometimes, and quite often, as I see, especially on the heels of awakening, there's territories you get into where one tool, or one black and white model of looking at it, just starts to break
0: down, and so it's more subtle. It's more complex. It's it's, it's
1: much more complex. You know, more intertwined
0: yeah. with all kinds of different facets yeah. of your makeup.
1: It's very intertwined, I and mean, we can be from like how you hold your body energetically to your work. You know, where you grew up and your worldview on this and your conditioning on that, or You know, opportunities that, you know, things you desired that never came to be, you know, unfulfilled desires or so many different factors can play in at a given moment to present a certain milieu of suffering. And so I think that my main interest is in how do we have conversations like this, which is great about territories where the black and white model of viewing things is breaking down because it's really important to have those conversations really aware, valuable to be aware of that and to not put ourselves in those black and white models because sometimes, sometimes they're fantastic, but sometimes it's actually almost cruel to try to take the whole complexity of what you are and reduce it to these more simplistic models and try to shove them in that model and think that it's supposed to work because maybe some authority said it would, or we've been spiritually conditioned that, you know, that's what we're supposed to do. And, and so, I don't know if I'm making myself more clear, but...
0: It's helping, we're getting but,
1: there. Yeah, yeah, we're getting there, good. Well, you're helping me too, yeah. So.
0: Well, actually, one, one example came to my mind, which Great. which is Adya himself, I mean, he talks about his first awakening. And, and this isn't quite the same as what you're saying, but I think it relates. And, and then he kind of like got back into his habit of being a competitive athlete and pushing himself harder and harder. And next thing he knew, he was flat on his back in bed for six months or something. And then he recovered from that. And then the old habits start, eventually started to creep back in again. He started to do it again. And then it's almost like nature was slapping him down saying, no buddy, this is not what you're going to do anymore. You know, this is an old habit and I have different plans for you, so, exactly. so just yeah. cool it on the bicycle racing. You know?
1: <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I mean that's a perfect example and I can't speak for Adya on this, but you know you just take like okay you got a guy in his 20s and there's certain hormones and chemistry and all of those drives that are happening that mm-hmm. push that kind of competitiveness. You know it's not just as simple as a thought like I need to be a winner, whatever it is, you know, to be happy or I need to be competing to be happy. I mean, there's like the physical drives, there's the love of the sport mixed in. Some people actually love bike riding. Other yeah. people who are competitive athletes have said like, are you kidding me? It's like a grind from start to finish. Mm-hmm. I don't actually like it. But there's all kinds of different information in here. And it, it may not just be the identity of an athlete. You know, it could be just some energy that wants to express and this is where it feels satisfying to express it and or you know you know what i'm getting at there's many many factors happening here once somebody like i I like to use the word unpack you know once someone kind of unpacks like what are many of the ingredients that go into that desire to compete then you can get a better feel of all of the ingredients in the in the mix Mm -hmm. and then kind of be with that and create space around that and see which ingredients kind of come to the surface as the ones that want to be seen in their own time maybe in a certain order that we couldn't even guess but just somehow all that content may seek its own liberation and may know its own rate and its own order of unfolding. And so my interest is in, you know, how to support that and and to have various skills that we've developed as practitioners to address some of those different components yeah. in a way that can really support that unfolding of transformation.
0: So does this relate to the whole idea of embodiment as you understand it? We're all in bodies, right? Or we, yeah. we dwell in them. And most people in the world think they are their body. And so if you're going for enlightenment, you're going from a transition of, through a transition from feeling and, and thinking that you are your body to living as the totality of, of reality that, you know, within which the entire creation is contained. And that's, that's quite a range of uh, transition. So people go through all this stuff as they make that transition. And very often sort of identifying, you know, more strongly with the absolute to the exclusion or to the detriment of the body. And other things can happen, you know, your ability to hold down a job, your your relationships. Uh, Stephen Wright, who's a comedian, had this joke, uh, he and his girlfriend broke up because he really wasn't into meditation and she really wasn't into being alive. So, you know, there's this huge transition that people have to go through and there's a lot of reshuffling and rebuilding and restructuring that has to take place in the process. And as I understand it, that's what people mean when they talk about embodiment. They mean kind of embodying the absolute and embodying the eternal unbounded, you know, consciousness in a way that you can hold down a job and, and be in a relationship in a successful way and do all the normal human stuff while at the same time having this kind of cosmic awareness. How does that sit with you?
1: I love this conversation because, um, you know, you might have as many notions of embodiment as you do people. You know, I mean, people all have their own sense and everyone's using the term differently. And so I I like it when people are clarifying terms and I I feel excited to have these kind of conversations. I think that people mean many things about it. I think you've given voice very well to how a lot of people uh, view embodiment. What I'd love to say initially is that in a sense, there are perspectives where we know, uh, can come to our know ourselves as almost like having two bodies and then ultimately live without reference too much to either. But, you know, you've, you describe the sense of being identified with the body and then maybe having a certain kind of awakening to the sense of the absolute nature of our being, which in a sense, it, it will drop the particular identity with the personal notion of our body and then often that can give way and it's not always in this order but often it can give way to a sense of of the one universal body and there can be a way that our energetics kind of remap from the local physical body and start to map to the universal body of creation and in that there's often the experience that our attention will go from one to the other and back and forth. Like there might be moments where we feel very identified with this physical form. You know, you have physical pain, you have an emotion come up, you have a trigger, whatever it is. And then there can be times either when that's not happening or simultaneously there's like a an energetic mapping to the universal body. Mm. I know Audio talks yeah, about the
0: I got it, I lost it phase that people yes yes and that can go on for quite some time
1: and that can be more of a, a construct of mind mm-hmm. well it's in a sense in some ways it you could say that about a lot of things or maybe even all things if there's some projection of mind that I got it I lost it can be kind of held in more of a internal experience and a referencing of when they had it and gathering evidence to support I've lost it But it can also be this sense of this energetic organizing and almost like mapping to the local and the global or universal being maybe it might slow down for a while and a lot of the energy is going back to the local and then people will feel like they've lost a sense of of energetically knowing the universal i think that you might be speaking about is that does that sound
0: yeah even if the clarity of universality isn't so great, I mean in, in my own experience, I went through a phase where you know there would just be smooth, harmonious, blissful functioning and, and the, you know it's just like you're on automatic and everything is just flowing and then you know it would kind of <laughs> I'd lose that and I'd feel constricted and confined and things would be rough and and it's like there were sharp edges in everything and then back again and there was this there was a quite a phase of oscillation, but that eventually ended. Actually, let me ask you this. Even now, related to this, in your own experience, do you find that there's a, it's like a zoom lens where sometimes there's a, a kind of a more greater identification with or immersion in the universal and sometimes a greater focus in the personal. Indi- individual, personal, and yet it's not sort of either or the way it used to be. It's, it's more like just a, a focus according to the, the need of the moment or the, the kind of the appropriateness of your situation but somehow the two have come to coexist uh, in a stable and harmonious way.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I love that image. I use that image of the Zoom lens a lot. I think there are phases in this territory that seem to be common. And so initially, when there's that liberation from the sense of the identified form to the absolute or maybe to a sense of the one universal body, which in those moments, you're not even calling them that. You're not calling them the absolute or the universal or oneness or anything, but we're trying to give them terms. When those happen, there can often be a great sense of, you know, what people call being in the flow. Mm -hmm. Um, But even more than just being in the flow as a person who experiences himself in the flow, Mm -hmm. in those moments, there's a sense of there only is the flow. And there's not a sense of, oneself as being in it or out of it. There's just not a sense of oneself. There's just the one body of manifest intelligence expressing. And then it can move to a experience of feeling kind of more nuts and bolts like the camera. I have this experience of being right here with this or zoomed out into the big, you know, the, the sense of the one big, I call it the big body sometimes, mm-hmm. the, the big body and then the 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 little body. And there can be that experience. And then there's another phase beyond that, or even intermittent with that, where there's just this sense of, there's no referencing any of that. And so the sense of zooming in and zooming out becomes just part of the one intelligence expressing. And so that is, is more of my experience these days. And you know, at that point, or not even just at that point, but at any point, there's a way that we can have a sense of our, our nature that is, is looking out our eyes, our nature of beingness that um, is really beyond all of these visuals or, or reference points uh, whatsoever. And it doesn't mean it's beyond and that they disappear into some vanilla experience. But they disappear in terms of like how we organize completely start or or more completely leaves those reference points of of personal, universal, relative, absolute or even flow or not flow or got it or lost it like a lot of those can can
0: fall away that's nice, yeah, I like your use of the word intelligence, and I also in your recordings that I was listening to, you um, use that word a number of times and um, there was a quote in the newsletter that Adya sent out last week, or maybe it was this week, in which he said, life is divine and your life is your offering back to life. The reason I like that is that there's, a, in some spiritual circles, some maybe non-dual circles, there's a sort of a aridity that seems to have crept in, in which there's very little mention of the divine or the intelligence that seems to be governing the universe and and, and so on and in fact uh, my friend Francis Bennett whom you and I were talking about before this interview he, he actually says he gets flack sometimes on Facebook for like mentioning God or prayer or devotion and 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 that sort of thing but I think some people find that that begins to become more and more meaningful and rich for them as time goes on that awakening can't just kind of stay at the stage of flat and personal kind of thing, but an the, 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 the appreciation for the sort of the, the Divine begins to really uh, dawn and become important. Um, mm-hmm. So is, is that the kind of thing that Adi Aud- was alluding to in that quote and is, is, can you relate to what I'm saying?
1: I definitely can relate to what you're saying. I think that there's some phases in this territory, too, you know, at least in my experience, a lot of people I work with, you know, there is a sense, uh, especially when awakening is new in the initial weeks, months, years, it depends on what kind of awakening, by the way, that's a whole other conversation. But it can be a sense that, you know, any reference to a God or something outside of ourselves or something to, or someone to pray to, I mean, all of that construct just falls. And that's all part of the the liberating movement you know for those things to fall away Um, just like we were saying the, the kind of way we might organize around the body can completely shift but once there's that release of some of those constructs there's a way that it's almost as if that pure energy starts after it's been released starts to kind of come back into a new form like you mentioned the word embodiment earlier, and those new forms seek to be vehicles of expression of um, presence. It's just what they like to do, you know, and so that expression of presence very much feels like a divine experience, and it feels like that presence arises from nowhere, and there's this sense of that grace, of that presence arising that, that fits the word divinity, you know, it fits the word intelligence of something beyond our, our known human concepts, but, but moves in this mysterious way that, that seems to really be ruled by another order than the, the constructs, constructs of egoic conditioning. And so people seek to find words to speak to that experience. And if people haven't felt that liberated energy begin to really settle and ground into their form and be expressed free of most concept points, uh, reference points or concepts, then they may not relate to that, those terms of divinity. And they may even resent that there aren't new terms being used because The concepts of God and divinity are associated with many people and many times and many religious institutions that maybe weren't really speaking from this presence that I was just alluding to. And so I think there's a reaction against those terms because maybe people are actually seeking new terms, you know, new New ways to shake out those old terms and and and, and move forward with a, a more liberated expression,
0: and obviously, hopefully, obviously, the sense in which you and I are using such terms has nothing to do with you know an old guy with a beard in the clouds, exactly. or any kind of external or far distant uh, deity who is like oh. you know overlording and judging, judging us. It has to do with this sort of this sort of unfathomable intelligence innate in every particle of creation, you know, in our fingertip, in those flowers behind you, in and, and every little thing. Even from a scientific perspective, if we hear, hear what science is telling us, there's something marvelous going on in every little bit. Uh, yes. create, and if you start really pondering what that is, and, and if, you know, if, that's the, if that's the intelligence that's running the show, if that's the artist that has created this beautiful piece of art that we see as creation then you kind of want to meet the artist after a while you become more <laughs> become more intimate with with that uh, yeah you know that yeah. divine level of creation
1: yes yes and you may feel that meeting of that in your own expression as as all of the parts of yourself also reverberate that in in unison with all of these expressions that are reverberating and in that. Harmonic is um, is part of the you know that expression of the Tao. You know?
0: mm, yeah. So you mentioned a couple of things. At one point you said there could be different definitions of embodiment, and then a couple minutes ago you said different definitions of awakening. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and these terms there are, are types, Yeah, these, these terms are thrown around a lot. You know, my wife Irene coordinates the scheduling of people yes. these days, and I'll, I'll suggest somebody, and she'll say, "Well, is he awakened?" And I'll, I'll just have to say. Yeah, but you know the term is so has such an absolute connotation, and there seems there seems to be no end to awakenings, and so I don't know where to label it to say oh yes this is awakened and this is not awakened. It, it, it's like saying, are you educated? Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah, up to a point, but there's there's right, more, right. and I, I've even heard Adya say you know that he can some he often thinks of himself as just a beginner, and mm. and um, I think that's what he said, and if if that's the case, then I guess the, a, a good question to lead into your response would be, do you see any end to it? Or is there is, is it sort of a matter of never-ending deepening and clarification and greater embodiment with no end in sight? Yes. <laughs> the latter.
1: No, both. <laughs> no both. End. Yes to both. Yes to both. Uh, yes to both, really. I mean, I think that certain things end, you yeah. know, um, more or less. Uh, seeking can end, mm-hmm. more or less uh, movements toward attachment, and I don't know the preferences ever end.
0: Mm-hmm. Like um, you're going to like Chinese food better than Italian food, or exactly yeah, or of thing. A, prefer your husband to some other exactly. character on the street or whatever. Exactly, yeah.
1: or in the process of a loved one dying. Sure, attachment may not be your overriding feeling Mm -hmm. you know maybe you're you're with what's happening maybe attachment does arise because there's really a preference for them to stick around Mm -hmm. you know I mean there's healthy attachments right but that's really a big part of what this conversation is about is people tend like I was saying earlier to really want things to be black and white and even a term like attachment or awakening embodiment, liberated I mean, we had a few others in here but there's there's several that you know, there's just no consensus on them, but in general there is an end how I like to talk about it is there's a trajectory of embodiment that tends to look like less and less attachment less and less argument with what is, less and less of a sense of self, less and less of a sense of referencing, referencing spiritual territory in general. And there could also be maybe more references of more, you know, like maybe more and more uh, quiet, of uh, quietness of mind, more and more re- energetic rest in one's body and being, you know, and of course there are exceptions to this, you know, we have stressors and everything, but I think there's just feels like there's a trajectory And yet, there are certain pivotal moments where significant shifts in one's perspectives and construct come into play that, you know, we might call awakenings, that can be very much feel continued, and yet there can be a point where more or less more pieces have fallen into place or fallen away, whatever is appropriate.
0: So kind of like milestones, you know, there's this, yeah. you know, going to California and there's all these state borders you cross and each one of those is a milestone. And yeah. uh, of course you do get to California, but then there's Hawaii. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, right, 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 right. yeah. <laughs> Japan. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then you just feel so comfortable with, you don't need to, to organize around a sense of the end, you yeah. know. It's just like there's right here and it's the beginning the middle and the end you know the whole time so um it's just the way we organize around it i think changes even more significantly so that the the questions start to break down you know it's like they don't compute anymore like why would you you know like in a sense maybe that perspective might say you know, why are we talking about whether there's an end or not, I mean, what's the point?
0: Well, the reason you I know? bring it up yeah. is that I do no, not, not I, for
1: you, but yeah. I do
0: actually run into people still who say, you know, have some realization and they say, I'm done, I'm finished, that's it. Oh, you know? right. And I've heard right. Adi address this too, and, and there's a kind of a, for some reason there's this sort of very convincing quality about awakening sometimes where it, it seems like there couldn't be anything more and this must be it. And, right. uh, I'm very skeptical that that could be the case. But...
1: Well, I know that in my own experience and in in talking to others that sometimes that can be a phase, you yeah. know? Like there there's just there's no way you could compute in from that perspective that there's anything else than that perspective. Mm-hmm. It's just you could not fathom it. You could have a gun put to your head <laughs> and say like Um, would you stake your life on it? And the person in that perspective would say, hands down, I would. And then boom. Maybe boom. Yeah, maybe (laughs) not. Maybe they'll always remain in that perspective, you Mm. know, because there could be exceptions to what I've experienced and other people's have experienced. You know, so I'm not saying that I wouldn't get blown out too, you know, if I said, well, I'm going to say that that perspective will will go just as everything comes and goes you know I could get the shot in my head you know because in one sense that perspective that they're speaking of is is the eternal perspective and yet as eternity is expressing it expresses as that which changes and expresses infinitely in in an infinite number of ways with without end
0: good answer And and as you were saying that, it occurred to me that, you know, we all have different dharmas, different roles, and uh, it could very well be that for some people they have a significant degree of awakening and they're going to spend the rest of their life just living in that and, you know, without any significant, uh, other significant unfoldings and that just might be the way they're wired, you know, that just might be the, the role that they're cut out to play.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah. I love. It. I like that perspective because, it, it it frees us from from thinking it should be a certain way.
0: Yeah, that's good.
1: Yeah. yeah, I love that, Rick.
0: Thank you. I can't help. I confess, though, to having a bit of a roadmap mentality in terms of, you know, wanting to codify all these terms people use, such as awakening and enlightenment and embodiment and so on, because we're all using them all the time. And if we really want to be communicating, then there needs to be some kind of agreed upon understanding of what we're actually referring to. If everybody's referring to something somewhat different in the use of such terms, then there's a lot of kind of Tower of Babel um, situation.
1: Yeah. Well, it certainly um, uh, can be wonderful to strive toward that. You know, yeah,
0: So uh, let's loop back now and talk about the story of Mukti., uh, okay. yeah. and I've, I've heard you, you'd explain it beautifully on you know, your conscious TV interview and, and other things, but my listeners may not have heard those, and uh, then maybe we'll bring in some little unique angles or something that you didn't talk about in those other interviews. So uh, as I understand it, you—I think you said you grew up in an Irish Catholic family—and you know, take it from there.
1: Oh gosh, how much time do you have? Is this like a five-minute question?
0: Uh, this is as much time as you <laughs> want. Question. <laughs> you know, whatever feels appropriate um, in the context of this. That just so people, because people always want to know more about the person, as uh, in addition to whatever philosophical or spiritual perspectives they might have. They, people want to know, well, yeah. how do they get those perspectives? I mean, what did they go through that maybe I'm going through or will go through or something that, you know, might be helpful to me to, to hear about?
1: Yeah, yeah, well, there's obviously infinite ways I could answer this, but what comes to me in this moment is that um, what, what I feel most grateful for is that in my formative years, um, uh, and other people would go what because they didn't have the same experience, but I had a very positive Experience of growing up in Catholicism mm-hmm. and I I have heard Adya, um, Especially in his early years of teaching talk about um, Progressive paths and direct path teachings mm-hmm. and I feel like in my formative years if I were to call that Catholic Uh, experience of Catholicism a kind of progressive path Um, and then I was also introduced very young like age seven to the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda and my dad became interested in those and and yet the whole rest of my immediate family and extended family was still very involved in Catholicism so I really I mean it would be to very much oversimplify those two traditions to just just say okay they're both progressive end of story but for sake of trying to communicate i feel like
0: and let's just ask uh, yeah. by, by progressive and direct do you mean like you know yeah. sequential progressive progress as opposed to some kind of immediate full realization is that what you mean yeah, yeah i
1: was just about to go thanks okay and then after those formative years i had more direct path teachings through Adya, mm-hmm. and what is advantageous about the way i see those is that in progressive paths they're, they're very much building a foundation in a person to have a healthy sense of tribe community individuality morality service to something much greater than themselves you know a god a, a loving others there's pointing towards discipline and introspection and uh, contemplation that would help people be the most christian or the most loving people they can be in the world and that that sense of of love really comes from a connection to a well font of spirit that is is the ultimate source of love that that can express through us and that can speak to us when we call upon it etc and so for me those foundations um, were incredibly valuable to me to really steep in what's possible as far as a beautiful expressions of humanity, because you know, I know there's a lot of uh, ugliness out there.
0: So for instance, and- some of the Catholic saints, St. Saint Francis, uh, St. Teresa of Avila, and, and then Yogananda and Sri Yukteswar, and, and so you're just speaking of those as being examples of what it's possible for a human being to be, right?
1: I guess you, you could say that, but mostly I was speaking of my inner experience. Um, but I was inspired by those outer experience of the, the, the examples of those lives you mentioned, as well as their pointers to look within and to develop a sense of relating with the divine presence and to sense how that is feed for us in our nature as spirit. And to also, you know, take on their direct constructs of like, you know, guiding principles, whether they be the commandments or whether they be the self-realization fellowship lessons that Yogananda did. I mean, all of those were not only, like you are saying, being, presenting profound examples of what's possible as far as living an authentic expression of being that, you know, supports our well-being, but also the actual tools and teaching me you know how to how to hold some of these things and how to navigate. And so I felt really lucky that then when I was exposed to more direct path teachings that were a little less focused on the foundation, although there was definitely some focus on that, but the primary emphasis was on who is it that is living your life? What are you that is engaging in This business of living, praying, meditating. You know, what is it actually that you're praying to? What is this I am that is spoken of in the Bible? What is this psalm, be still and know that I am God? What actually is that indirect experience? And so the direct path teachings that I got from Adya were really like, you have to delve into your direct experience to come Upon a, a knowing, like an order of knowing that is not um, something that's been presented to you, but something you come to know through your own inquiry. And and I had a little bit, bit of that through Yogananda, you know, and there's probably a fair amount of that in, in Christianity that, that I didn't uh, expose myself to as much. But I just felt like the marriage of the two created this fertile ground that was greatly supported through those progressive paths of Catholicism, self realization Fellowship, even in my studies in Chinese Medicine, Hatha Yoga, and then um, to then have that foundation on which to take in and to feel secure enough and attracted enough to delve into the self-inquiry questions that Adi presented, I felt was a real real blessing. And I feel it's also a blessing in the embodiment also because there's some sense of the flavors of what can be embodied and the presence of what can be embodied that I think was greatly nurtured prior to my awakenings that kind of catapulted me into more absolute view or transcendent views. I think knowing that divinity helped whatever we want to call it, my soul, my person, ascend into embodied expression because there is a sense that it is it's not like before when we incarnate at birth where there's a sense of a me coming into form expressing it's so different this time because the divine has taken up in our in one's consciousness to such an extent that it it literally feels more like the divine is incarnating whether we want to say with us or as us through us through us exactly. So so I felt like all of those years of getting a sense of the divinity has made it facilitated making it feel like that divinity is always and ever present and expresses as as what I am in the falling of, of what I thought I was.
0: Nice. So it kind of sounds like you're saying that at least in your case Direct Path and Progressive Path teachings can be complementary, mutually enriching or supporting.
1: I believe so, yeah. Yeah.
0: And uh, there's some old Zen saying where it's, uh, enlightenment may be instantaneous, but, what what is it? Enlightenment may be an accident, but spiritual practice makes you (laughs) (laughs) accident-prone. You know, so it's like all this culturing and refining and enriching of your, your sense of the divine. Even, I guess that would be the progressive thing, brought you to a point where a direct path teaching such as Adya's was perhaps able to be more fruitful than it might otherwise have been.
1: That's my feeling. Um, Of course, you know, I've only lived this one life, so I can't say categorically, but that's my, that's really my instinct, my my sense of, of something that the pairing of those two, the progressive, path teachings and the direct path teachings for me has felt like it's it's made it much easier for me than other people I observe um, yeah. to to have uh, things, especially the uh, process of embodiment and the the ease with that uh, come about more smoothly. And there may be other factors that, that you know, I, I don't claim to... To be able to track or know, you know, like notions of karma or other things that have made it easier for me. But I still feel Mass like. Lives. Yeah, even, but even people who have had difficult karma, I have seen their foundation in progressive path teachings help them tremendously with embodiment. That's my interpretation of, of what's happening.
0: You were saying before in the, in the beginning about how simplistic paths. Solutions or, or techniques or perspectives don't necessarily cut it when one is dealing with some critical issue. I think you said that we have a tendency to try to grasp at those. And yeah. uh, I think people do have a tendency to want to glom on to black and white thinking, you know, exactly, simplistic yeah. perspectives. And yeah. uh, I see nothing wrong with nuance and paradox and, you know, both and. In fact, I think it's extremely helpful. So there's, there's absolutely no conflict or competition between direct path and, and progressive path, doing practices, and, and at the same time realizing that you know you are already that, and you know all kinds of such things that these little debates take place on,
1: in right, the, right in yeah. chat
0: groups and so on.
1: Yeah, I mean it's so funny. I mean because you know when you take a side, you know you you can definitely shoot down the other side really easily. <laughs> you know, I can too, you know, I could be in a debate and shoot down each side and and I could probably shoot down what I just said, but um, I think in the end uh, what's more important than than winning the argument is what's the nourishment that's that's needed to know and express the the clarity of being um, at any given juncture, you know, and just to just to sense that and I think it's wise to be open in in this business of uh, coming to know and express ourselves as the infinite. It's it's wise to open to the infinite myriad of expressions. Yeah. Um, because there are all those facets uh, are ourselves.
0: Yeah, it's beautifully put. God is not a one-trick pony. You know, there's this verse in the in the Bhagavad Gita someplace where Lord Krishna says, you know, However people approach me, so do I favor them, and uh, that any sort of spiritual effort or aspiration or interest or initiative is acknowledged and and uh, rewarded as it were yeah and I think if we're really serious about this business you know if we if we really are genuinely sincerely interested in, in awakening as profoundly as possible and as being uh, in, in in being as great a a kind of a contributor to, to the world as we can be, then we're not going to dismiss or reject any possibility that would um, would foster that.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's good. I mean, you know, I, I know that sometimes it's appropriate to give some really um, black or white structure for somebody to give in juncture, you know. and. Um, and so and and there is a appropriateness to let someone stabilize in certain viewpoints that they're opening up to
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, to just to let them think certain things for a while you know as they really come into the full power of that i guess power would be the right word and um full embodiment of that and what's nice is even if we just keep our mouth shut and let that happen or you know we can have confidence that all the that the other facets in their own time will seek to will seek their expression as well and that that things do come and go and change and as consciousness itself seeks to to know itself through us new perspectives will begin to unfold.
0: Yeah no good point. Back in the 70s I was teaching meditation out west with a team of three other guys and we were traveling around a bunch of states and for some reason whenever we flew into Las Vegas it would take forever to get the luggage and uh, without fail there were Hare Krishna people in the airport (laughs) so I would always you know entertain myself by talking to the Hare Krishna people while waiting for my luggage and I remember talking to one guy who had been helped so much by that path and that approach And I was, you know, on a different path, teaching a different thing. I can remember, it was a a lesson for me, I think, not to in any way, and of course there have been other examples, but not to in any way diminish or compare my path to his and uh, just to appreciate how how much value he was deriving from what he was doing. And I doubt that he's doing that, you know, now, 30, 40 years later, but it was great for him at the time.
1: Great. I love that little vignette. That's awesome.
0: So let's get back to Mukti, the story of Mukti. Um okay. so we, we kind of veered off. You were talking about how, you, know, you had had this upbringing with first Christianity then, and then Yogananda, and that had, in a way, prepared you, or kind of built a ground or a foundation which then made the direct path more potent or fruitful. Or, and that direct path was with Adya, as I understand it, that you met him even and married him, even before he started teaching. And so pick up the story from there. What was he doing when you first met him? What were you doing when you, how did you guys meet?
1: I was working in high tech in the uh, um, Palo Alto area.
0: Mm-hmm. You're some He's kind working. of programmer or something?
1: No, um, I had, at the time, I, I think I was working as a, in that year, I kind of flipped back and forth between um, technical writing. Of, manuals mm-hmm. for software and hardware and um, marketing of, of those products because it's a small company. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes i market at trade shows around the country or just do different things on the phone, surveys and direct marketing and things like that. But I knew my time there was ending. You know, I was kind of seeking to to get certain products out, and then I knew that I'd be leaving. And um, But in that year, what was significant about that year for me is... Um, it was I was about maybe age 24 or something. And I had decided, you know, since graduating from college around age 21, 22 that by the time I was at that age. Oh gosh, I can't remember action. Seems like I'm messing up my ages and I guess I graduated at 21. But anyway, because I had been working in high tech for four years. I made a commitment to myself to meditate tw- twice a day and do the energization exercises, which are some pranayama breathing yogic exercises that uh, Yogananda recommends mm-hmm. daily for uh, a year straight. I made that commitment to myself because I was uh, kind of abysmal at, at discipline <laughs> when it came to uh, meditation.
0: Was the Yogananda meditation arduous or uh, did, was it kind of gratifying and, and motivated you to sit down and do it?
1: I don't know that it was arduous for other people, but it was arduous for me. Okay. And yet, uh, the devotional part of me, like I always loved the, the prayers and the chanting and everything, so that part was not arduous, Arduous, and I loved just being together in community with the people meditating. Um, so I, I committed to that, and I, I kind of was moving away from my socializing as I had known it in university, and, and so I spent also many evenings going to longer uh, meditation groups, and, and so it was a really fruitful year for me, spiritually speaking. And I was praying quite a bit and and really kind of preparing myself to attract someone into my life. As Yogananda put it, you know, you can tr- attract someone of like vibration. And I thought, gosh, I've always really wanted a partner who was really, really committed to um, spirituality. Because I had considered being a monastic and had spent some time at, at a ashram myself before that. A
0: Yogananda no, 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 sorry. Somebody. Sorry,
1: after that, after that, as it turned out, after that. What? yeah y- Yogananda. Yogananda's. yoga yeah. like
0: yeah,
1: okay yeah and I wasn't a uh, postulant or anything I just worked in the offices as a layperson but that was just after I had met Adya, actually and and so I was lining that up for my life and um I thought I wasn't really didn't really know if I wanted to be a monastic or have a partner but I knew that I wanted spirituality to be central in my life as it happened I lived in one of these group households where a lot of people rented rooms you know we all like found our housing on the university bulletin board, you know. Mm -hmm. And then we shared the common areas. And one of the uh, young men that had a room in this larger house um, started dating Audie's sister. And so I got to know Audie's older sister. And one day we were chatting and I mentioned to her that I meditated daily. And her mouth, kind like her eyes kind of went like, you know, got wide and her mouth uh, got open. And she called her boyfriend like, get in here. Why don't we ever think of setting up, you know. Um, Annie, which is you know my my lay person's name Annie, with my brother and you know her boyfriend's like, oh my god, like why didn't we think about it about that and and she said, yeah, you're the only two people who I've ever known who meditate, so maybe you guys would like each other.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, so we tried to go on a double date with them a few times, and then finally we ended up going on a blind date. He called me and and asked me out. So.
0: Well, it wasn't exactly blind, because he knew who he was calling.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, it wasn't totally blind, yeah, right. but sight unseen, he said, yeah, I'm going to take this one out. So. Oh,
0: I see, you hadn't met yet, and he called you. Right, right, yeah. right, right, yeah. yeah. Good, so you kind of hit it off, uh, so was it love at first sight?
1: I don't know, I, kind of, uh-huh. not in the way you typically think of it, like sparks flying.
0: Right, so a deep recognition kind of thing?
1: I do describe sometimes, like when, when I open the door, it was just like something shifted in him where he felt, how does he describe it? Kind of like the, the troubles of his current life just kind of fell away and, and when he saw me, he, he just knew like this person will be significant in my life for the rest of my life. Interesting. And, and that's what he knew when he saw me. And when I saw him, it was just more like, I, I, I saw him and I thought, I've never met a person like this, and I was curious,
0: You and mean, so, even at first glance you thought, I've never met a person like this, or after you had yeah. talked a little bit? What was it about well, him when it you... Well, both,
1: it was th- both. It was both the phone conversation before the date and yeah. the date.
0: What was it about him that was unprecedented in your experience?
1: It's very subtle, it's a great question. He didn't want anything. You know, I didn't feel like he wanted anything from me. He didn't want anything in particular to happen. He, you know, wasn't putting on a show. He wasn't like jockeying for position or trying to make an impression. There was a comfortability in himself to not necessarily be talkative or, I mean, this is all in the first few minutes, right? Mm -hmm. But a confidence in himself to speak when he spoke. It doesn't mean that other people don't have these qualities, but it was something about the blend.
0: Yeah.
1: And that I thought I haven't come upon this before myself. Yeah.
0: That's a nice characterization. That's, that's, yeah. That's really nice. Um, yeah. Just a, probably we could sum it up with the word naturalness. Yeah.
1: The, the funny thing is, it, he's very natural and yet not ordinary at the same time. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I totally know like, what you mean.
1: Yeah, yeah. I and, mean, yeah. you know,
0: having had lunch with him that time he came to Fairfield, I, and having, you know, known him before from his teachings, but there's this head-in-the-clouds, feet-on-the-ground kind of quality about him, just a real sort of what you see is what you get, but there's a lot going on there that, you know, you know there's, there's a great depth, and,
1: I love and, and yet at the
0: same time a great sort of down-to-earthness and, and kind yeah. of sim- simplicity. And, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think you described him fantastically, thank you. <laughs> yeah.
0: So how long did you guys go out together before you decided to get married?
1: Well, we had an interruption there because around the time I met him, I, I'd already lined it up to to work at the ashram. Oh, I see. The Yogananda.
0: Thing. So,
1: yeah. So we, we dated for a while. It got interrupted. But for you know various reasons, we put it on hold. I think we really, really got going dating about a year and a half later. But that whole time we were at a distance and we we were doing something kind of very traditional we were just writing letters to each other all the time and we really got to know each other a lot through the letters and through the times we did see each other through the year that I was away I had made a year commitment to the ashram. Mm -hmm. And then after I returned I think we got engaged about a year later and then um, got married something like eight years after that I can't quite remember. Eight months after that, I eight say months. that,
0: yeah, you said years. <laughs> yeah,
1: eight months. Because yeah. we got married when I was 28, so somewhere in there.
0: Okay, so you were going along, and then at a certain point, I guess after you were married, Adi decided to become a teacher, right?
1: His his teacher asked him to become a teacher. His, yeah. Right. Jesse, yeah.
0: hmm And you and you went along and decided to you know help be his backup person for that and you know help him right organize the Open Gate Sangha and everything. Exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah. Just a little thing that you might enjoy. Yeah. When we were dating, mm-hmm. I was really practical person, you know, and I was asking a lot of questions and yeah, about what he wanted to do for his life. And, and one thing he said is, I, he said, I just have this sense that someday I'll be a teacher. Hmm. And, and I said, um, what well, do you think? What kind of teacher? You know, and he's like, well, it's going to be a teacher of adults. And he said, it may be like in a university setting, but he's like, it might be in a spiritual setting. And, and I said, well, do you think it could look like your teachers? And one of his teachers has a whole, it's, like, it's really like an abbot of a whole Zen center. And he said, it could be, and boy, would I have to sit with that one for a long time? Like, do I really want to be, you know, the wife of an abbot running a Zen center? Yeah. But in a way, I could see the perfection of it because I had considered the monastic life and I had considered the lay life, and I was like, wow, this is like a hybrid. But it was an interesting curveball for me when we were dating because I was such a loyal student to Yogananda. And so to think of like being, you know, resonant in the Zen Center, practicing my yogic path was kind of a that's something to chew on for a bit.
0: <laughs> Since the two of you both had a kind of a monastic background in a way, did you have any trouble adjusting to uh, married life?
1: No, we, really easy for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really easy.
0: Yeah. One thing I always find refreshing about Adi's teaching is that I mean, well, I'm
1: sorry, to, I should rewind a bit. We had a few challenges, um, but overarching, it was very easy. Right. Just say, yeah. A few, you know, if you just Adjustings. I, yeah. I don't need to like paint it, you know how memory can, you can kind of forget things and sure. then like after I answered I was like, oh, I kind of forgot, there was, there was a few warps and warbles, uh, <laughs> but in general neither of us are people who enjoy arguing and some people love to argue and mm. it's really fun, but, but we are both people that love to have harmony and yeah. in general we would work things out and keep things smooth. Yeah, yeah so, well what relationship guess, hasn't
0: exactly. had a few warps and warbles, you know?
1: Exactly, yeah. yeah. And at that age, you know, too, I hope, I hope we get wiser as we age some, you know.
0: Yeah, seems to be the trend. <laughs> <laughs> just going to say one thing I think a lot of people appreciate about his teaching, at least I've never been to one of his retreats, so I don't know what goes on there, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of trappings, you know, just what you described about his personality earlier when you first met him in terms of naturalness and simplicity and all that. That's the way the whole thing comes across. You know, when you watch various videos and and uh, mm-hmm. and talks, there's just not a whole lot of falderol, which is refreshing. Good,
1: good. Yeah. I'm, glad, I'm glad you're enjoying it.
0: Yeah. So. Me too. Well, actually, there's somebody who emailed me just today. I think it was who who said, "I wonder if," I I know more because I've listened to more of your talks. But she says. I wonder if Mukti's enlightened, I mean, or awakened. I mean, she can't help but not be hanging around with Adya all the time. If he had already undergone awakening prior to your getting together with him, was there some sort of osmosis effect that you began to feel when you were together? Is it contagious?
1: <laughs> I love this great question. You know, I don't th- I don't think I'd give a black or white answer, is mm-hmm. is the quick thing, because it's kind of the theme of our interview, right? One thing I, I sense when I look back is I have such a profound trust in him as a human being and I had that from day one and in general I've had such a life where I can have the luxury of being pretty trusting and so I feel like I really could touch into him in a way that maybe others who may feel less of the capacity for that trust may not be able to you know and so I feel in that in that way, I was really open to his pointers, very receptive, and I very much engaged him as my teacher, and so there was almost like two tracks going, you know, Adi, my husband, Adi, my teacher, and they weren't, they didn't feel really separate, like we we shifted between the two really fluidly, and, and still do, but I think the transmission that really opened my Horizons as far as direct path teachings and spirituality and inquiry and the pointers that he gave and continue you know continues to give as a teacher not so much to me personally now but just t- to to people at large similar pointers I think that there's a way that my connection to them allowed them to go in very very directly and um, that trust really provided an openness for them to to come in quite directly. And I had that trust also validated in our personal life and who he was in that role. And then I think there's also perhaps a component, which I can't definitively say, but I think there's a component of presence and, or, and or, but probably and, Kundalini, that I could feel being close in his proximity you know, days, day after day, night after night.
0: Yeah.
1: A lot of that I didn't really feel as acutely until uh, after the more significant awakening that occurred for me. Um, but it's also interesting because I think the two of us together supported one another. I mean, it was really when he could kind of rest into our relationship and our marriage that things really began to unfold for him quickly. More quickly, I think um, in some ways I've had easier karma than him. And I, it feels like when you get married, you really share each other's karma. And so I feel like, you know, we've been mutually supportive in our spiritual unfoldings and, you know, he, he jokes around with me, you know, saying that I've taught him a lot about just, you know, how to be a better host or have manners when he has guests or how to have conversations with people. You know, so I think that, that um, some people have that lens of like, oh, you know, of course, it's, you know, I just had this great influence on Mukti, but it's really been an influence that has, has traveled both directions. And, um, <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that to toot my horn, but I think it's just a valuable perspective to see that, of course, we all influence each other constantly. So there's no way I could ever say that His presence in, has, has not had a profound impact on my life because that's what we are for each other, you yeah. know? And I think, I think it's probably beyond our comprehension how much effect we have on, on those around us or on, on every single living being, you know?
0: Mm, that was a great answer. Uh, yeah. There's so much wonderful stuff in what you just said. And I'm glad you said the bit about, you know, you influencing him, because I don't mean to imply by all these questions of, oh, what is it like to be married to Adya, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: right, right, right yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. You
0: probably get that a lot. And I'm sure that, you know, your influence on him is every, is every bit as important as his influence on you, and, you know, so I don't mean to imply otherwise by asking all these questions. Yeah, um, I didn't
1: get that, Rick, thank you. <laughs> I didn't get that at all. Okay. Yeah.
0: Good. And and the thing he said about transmission, I think, is significant, too, because, I mean, I've been around some teachers that had a lot of Shakti, you know, and Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and Amma. And um, I never met Muktananda personally, but I went into one of his centers one time in New York, and it was cooking, you know, there was just a lot of Shakti in the atmosphere. And I noticed that also in sitting with Adya at lunch and, and here in Iowa, that it was just like coming off him like, Heat waves off a hot road, you know, in, in the summertime, there was just a lot of of shakti that you know, it was just kind of spontaneously transmitted. So, I imagine that has, you know, was influential for you, as you said it was. Yeah, and yeah.
1: It uh, just to let you know, though, it it really uh, like the volume on that really goes down when he's not in the teaching setting.
0: Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah,
1: yeah. Just you know, kind of goes in, and then that presence really comes forward when it has the intelligence to do so, you know?
0: I'm sure you've experienced that yourself as a teacher, you know, you're up in front of yeah. an audience of people and and somehow when you put yourself in that role, the, yeah. it really amps up, you Exactly. Know? and then you're you're back to you know, cuz it wouldn't necessarily need to be amped up like that all the time. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And then when it's amped down, it seems that that's restful for the body too. In yeah. other words, you can almost feel like you got your circuits fried or something.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I was a TM teacher for a long time, and yeah. and you'd give a lecture in front of 500 people or something, and, you know, you really were cooking. Um, yeah, that, yeah you, you'd especially with the bigger
1: would be up, and, be up yeah. until
0: four in the morning, you know, you couldn't get to sleep because uh. there's so, so much else. So you wouldn't want that all the time, necessarily.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I haven't tried it yet, but yeah. Yeah. Continuing along here. So I heard you tell the story of how you were on some retreat with Adya or something, and you had a pretty significant awakening and you you didn't even quite realize it had happened until the next day when, you know, go ahead and tell that story in as much detail as you want. I mean, you know, there's obviously so many things we could talk about, but bring out whatever you feel would be significant in the context of this conversation.
1: Okay, I'll do that because, you know, people can um, go on to Conscious TV and there's... TV. Sure, they
0: can see that whole thing and you don't need to repeat yeah. it all over it's again. Yeah, there's
1: actually a little bit of on the first video and a little bit more on the second video. But yeah. Um, but yeah, maybe just to, to touch in with what might be significant here. Well, what I would love to do and I've been wanting to do at some point in this interview, so I think it was a good time, is, you know, that tendency of people to, to kind of make their approach to ego or suffering or embodiment or whatever all all these different parts of the spiritual territory they can tend to make that approach very black and white yes and we can sometimes there's a tendency to to really want to make it really simple so that that there's something really concrete to relax into and just like give your energy to and it's interesting that sometimes that really works especially if, if it's if it's at the stage where it's absolutely appropriate you know Sometimes it's like trying to use the wrong tool um, or just all the tools come up short. But interestingly enough, sometimes in spiritual practice, things aren't simple enough. And so that's the paradox of sometimes we really wanna oversimplify and it doesn't work. And sometimes we don't almost have the capacity to simplify enough to have ourselves engaged in one thing that really gives transformative power. Mm -hmm. And what happened for me on that retreat with Adya is I had been cooking for some time with an inquiry that kind of helped me get through an incredibly busy time with multiple jobs and acupuncture education program, newly married, all kinds of things. What is Starting the open song, but right, so you're familiar with this thing I was cooking on, what is rest, contemplating that for a long time, using it such that asking the question would direct my attention to a sense of rest that was already present, mm-hmm. really, and to invite that sense of rest, almost like I was asking it, what are you, to have that sense of rest present itself in a more palpable way. And then when I was on that retreat and Adi gave a talk on stillness, which is on, this is on the uh, Conscious TV interview, when everyone went to bed, I really sat with that question, what is stillness, and and energetically dropped it from my mind, just into my body and into the quiet sense of rest that I had been cultivating. And uh, just let it ripple, just let the question ripple and carry my attention into stillness, into a direct sense of stillness. And... And being that simple, it taken me a long time to come to a moment where I could be that simple and just give the entirety of my being to that question. And it wasn't just a capacity I had developed, it was when I had heard him give the talk on stillness, I could feel feel where he was speaking from and it was still in my system and in that inquiry, I let the inquiry take me to, to to that, which was being transmitted in his talk, and that it, it took, it didn't take so much me, but I just, my attention laid its head down in that, and just emerged with that, and that had its own unfolding from there. And so that's one of the most important things I can convey about my awakening experience, is that that question really captured me, and that's how I knew to give myself to it completely.
0: I wonder um, if your Yogananda background had any... If, it did, yeah. Yeah, because affirmations, you know, and, and just the... You, you had cultured the ability to follow a, an affirmation down to a, a subtler level or something, and, and so you were, you were primed to be able to do this.
1: Well, two things, as I look back on the Yogananda stuff, definitely I I, um, had practiced affirmations. And also there's like two things that I I look back on. And one is that um, when I was very young, like well, not super young, but maybe like 14, Mm -hmm. I was in a Yogananda activity with other uh, young women who were my age, and we were all embroidering this psalm, Be Still and Know That I'm God. And I just was so taken by how I didn't know what that was. And so that seed was planted in me at a much younger age, and I would chew on it periodically, you know, throughout my life. Like, what actually is it to be still? I don't know if I've ever been still. And and could you actually know God, you know? And how could the stillness show me that, you know? So, so there was something that was already in the mix, I think. Also, just the... Um, the time that i had spent with yogananda's teachings where i had become more attuned to presence mm-hmm. and transmission that i could i could real i really can take could take notice of it when Adi was giving his talk and you know sense it very acutely and and so i really think yogananda was tremendous in in that and also the way he always pointed yogananda you know, you have to take things into your inner laboratory
0: nice so anyway, he was giving this talk about stillness, and you were asking, had been asking the question, what is rest? And somehow or other, uh, there was a significant shift, which you talk about in much greater detail on Conscious TV, which people should look up that interview and to hear all the details. But in any case, that was kind of a turning point for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, spiritually speaking, it was, um, it was really like my sense of self was turned inside out. Mm. You know, just this sense of, believing who I was at the center of experience like right here looking out at the world looking out at the territory of spirituality as I turned in it was as though I merged with that inward sense of stillness that that literally almost like felt like it pulled myself as I knew myself to be into that stillness and then when a sense of self reemerged it was literally like being turned inside out, and instead of feeling like I was this one in the center of the eternal, I I literally felt more like I was the eternal looking out at itself.
0: Did that sense fade after a while, or did did it pretty Um, much just integrate and stabilize and kind of become the the kind of the norm for you?
1: A little bit of both, Uh, it depends how you look at it. How I feel what happened was that turning and that sense of the eternal, it really took up residence in a way. It almost just felt like it entered the architecture of, of what, who and what I was in such a deep way that that has never left. In fact, it, it seemed to be that it always has been and always will be, you know, whether I have a body or not. But what did change was that sense of like the eternal looking out my eyes, almost like they talk about, like, the Holy Ghost. I felt like, oh, I fu- I know what they mean by the Holy Ghost. It's just the sense of, like, these two eye sockets and infinity, like, looking out of this body. But that sense changed in just the, the, on the heels of that shift in the next couple days, that sense of emptiness looking out at itself, kind of also, I don't know that it did a flip, but it did a... um almost like an energetic merging where inside and outside just they both like aligned and so that sense of the eternal looking out at creation it's like the creation and the holy ghost just like they just aligned and lined up and became the same and so it was the sense that the manifest world is this emptiness
0: or fullness as yeah. the case maybe
1: yeah, yeah, is this eternal? I mean, yeah. yeah, the the words break down. The eternal is the eminent.
0: It kind of makes sense cuz I mean, the if the, if the eternal is the infinite uh, and if it's really sort of infinite and omnipresent, how can that look out? You know? I mean, exactly, it's looking yeah. at itself. So it's, Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, and then it went kind of from looking at itself to oh, this is myself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Nice yeah and what? so that 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 basically has stayed although what happened on the heels of that just to finish the question really fast is more of a sense of the construct of my personality and um and ego started to come back but i was surprised at how how much of the ego had just seemed to have vanished A mm-hmm. lots of times people are surprised that any ego comes back and that's can be a bummer But I was almost surprised at how much had fallen away. Like, oh my gosh, where did that go? And I think people experience both. Surprise on on both counts. But that sense of the ego not ultimately being what I am, it it just made it a completely different experience.
0: Yeah. And um, would you agree that the ego is a faculty, like, like the sense of hearing or any of our other human faculties, and that you need that faculty in order to function in the world? So it's not like... You can be completely and utterly egoless, you know, without any sense of, of sort of personal self and, and be able to function, or am I wrong? It does, is it not that way?
1: I think it's almost like, it's at a certain point, that, or, or from a certain perspective I should say, the referencing of the ego goes offline. Mm-hmm. So at that point, like, you could still call it ego, and that's fine with me, or you could just not call it ego. Uh, and that would be fine with me. It's almost like the ego can come back in its, almost like different strands of the former structure come back and they may come back in a different way or they may come back in just the very same way. And and when they come back, they're seeking their place in the scheme of that liberated state and they they often are seeking their liberation Or maybe they're just seeking to be um, a conduit for the expression of that awakened state. So it's almost like it may feel like it's in the black or white view. It's like, oh, it just all gets liberated and discarded. But it's almost more like it energetically transforms into a different vehicle. And some of it doesn't need to transform so much because it's basically a pretty healthy conduit for... Expression of spirit and some of it as it reforms can look very concrete You know can really look like a personality and expression and and you know, we could call that ego We could call that personality. We could call it a whatever we want, you know embodied spirit But at that point you really have to like take the the magnifying glass to how we're using the terms and again, you know and say and at that point you're like splitting hair so much, and your your lived experience is like, it's just not necessary to get in there with the microscope, because you're too busy going on with the business of living, you know?
0: Yeah, well yeah. I th- I think in Sanskrit the best equivalent to ego is ahamkara, which means eye maker, and um, you know, it seems to me, and uh, you yeah, know, I'm not arguing the point, but I'm just so, yeah. and you're willing to refute it if, if you if that's what your experience is, but it seems to me that you know, there's going to be a, some sense of I, obviously, yeah. even though the kind of the impersonal cosmic awareness or whatever you want to call it might be predominant. But if, yeah. if, if somebody calls, calls your name, you're going to turn your head. Or if, yeah. you, if you stub your toe, that's different from a rock being dropped on your driveway in terms of the lived experience of the situation. There's some localization of, of experience as long as we're a human entity. Absolutely. And if, if people expect to be completely and utterly free of that, and have no personal identity whatsoever, they may end up you know, spending their lives looking for something that's never going to happen.
1: Yeah, and they may miss out on a really rich human experience, too.
0: You know? Yeah, that's an interesting point, which is yeah. that, as opposed to snuffing out our human experience, doesn't all this awakening actually enrich and enliven it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: make it much more sumptuous.
1: It certainly can. I don't want to be Pollyanna ish, you know, that it's always, um, you know, rich and beautiful. You know, there's rainbows there's, and unicorns. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's the grit, there's the boots on the ground, you know, there's the spice and the sweet, mm-hmm. you know, the bitter and the sweet, whatever you want to call it. But you see it all as yourself more in the sense that you don't have to have it be sweet, you know, and, and beautiful, and yet but you're also not running away. And missing the beauty when when it can present and strike you, you know, very profoundly.
0: Yeah. How you doing on time? You good to go for a little longer? You wanna wrap it up? Or um
1: what? let's start to head toward wrapping it up, yeah. I mean I, I don't have a an end point, but I, I think yeah, it'd be nice to sure transition to other arenas of life that, that yeah. I'll might be wondering wondering what's happening.
0: <laughs> yeah, what happened to Mukti? Um, no, that's good. And I, I think in a way we've come full circle, you know, yeah. in this discussion. We, we started out talking about dealing with stuff that may erupt when awakening occurs, and we talked about embodiment and so on. And uh, we've looped around through a lot of good stuff and in a way come back to that very thing, and you know, living of awakening through the human instrument. Maybe what a what a precious opportunity that is. So that's good.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So anything anything you'd like to say in conclusion?
1: Yeah, um, just as you were talking, something the feeling of something was coming forward. Um, it seems to be that that within ourselves, you know, going back to the earlier part of the interview, that seeks its liberation as perhaps as far as it's a little oversimplistic to call it content of conditioning, but just energies that may seek a new harmony, as those are coming up, whether it be thought constructs, behavioral patterns, traumas, whatever it might be, as that's coming up, if there is a capacity to rest in oneself as as spirit and to rest in in one's nature as the seeing of awareness that liberation seeks then there's a way that that awareness can both be directed as as one is attending to that, that content of experience and directing one's attention to be present for that and that seems to somehow um, further encourage that content to want to join that sense of aware space we could call it and when that content begins to join its its liberated state or its nature as awareness it literally can release energy from our human expression to be available for other expression and and to be available to be really valuable contribution for our own lives and for our world you know being available to that sometimes takes a tremendous amount of courage and uh, dedication, and love. And that is not only something that is needed by those aspects of ourself that seek that liberation, but it's also something that we can thrive in because it's our nature to express as attention, uh, love, compassion, uh, a beingness that, that is uh, receptive. It's not only about us, you know, that process of liberating that content of what some people might call ego. It's also about our nature as spirit to to get to welcome itself in these forms of conditioned patterns, and uh, to let that functioning of our nature as spirit function and and be present for for all of these aspects that, that long to to join that. Freedom.
0: So I kind of hear you saying that you know, spirit wants to, if if we can anthropomorphize it a bit, it wants to express fully through us yeah. and in us, and we can choose to cooperate more and yes. with our attention and our intention, we can um, be more cooperative and, and help to facilitate its in its desire is again anthropomorphizing its desire to make us as fit a vehicle as possible for its expression
1: exactly yeah yeah, yeah. and it's kind of reminiscent of you know all those images of you know us chasing god when god's chasing us yeah. you know there's that sense of it may feel like um, we're trying to you know liberate this stuff sometimes when in actuality it's the nature of things to move toward liberation, mm-hmm. and it's the nature of our expression of spirit to be that liberating agent, and to be enriched by all that that becomes liberated and and joins that union of spirit with spirit.
0: Perfect. We'll end it there.
1: <laughs> okay. Great.
0: But okay, let me thanks make. Thanks some... for letting
1: me. Yeah. Thanks for letting me do that. Oh, um, for
0: sure. But uh, just let me make some concluding remarks. But yes, you're very much yes. welcome, and and thanks for doing this, and. I know you just got back from Europe, and you've been busy and all, and there was a lot of technical setup involved. So I really appreciate the effort you've made to you know, do this, and uh, it's been a lot of fun.
1: I'm so glad you enjoyed it. I've been looking forward to it for a while and yeah, me too. looking forward to, you know, who will come upon it and find their way to um, sharing with you and I, you know, our, our great love of this.
0: So Mukti will have her own page on, on bathgap.com, this particular interview will have its own page, and on that page I'll have her bio and also a link to her website muktisource.org, and also a link to an audiobook that she has put on, that Sounds True is, has published, that I've been listening to this week. Oh.
1: I think that's something that's for sale. It is. Oh, uh, yeah,
0: that's for sale, sure. Uh, on but you Sounds. don't want
1: to give them the link that we gave you for the. the no, free. no, 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 no. I'm going to give the
0: regular link to the Sounds True page where they can buy the book.
1: <laughs> Yay, they'll <laughs> love that Sounds True. I'm a not
0: going to give them your personal password to <laughs> Sounds True. <laughs> yeah, so there was that, and uh, it's a nice book. You'll enjoy it. And uh, also, if you go to muktisource.org, muktisourc org, that will redirect you to a page on Adyashanti's site where you'll find all things Mukti. I know sometimes you conduct the Wednesday night phone call thing or video th- conference thing that Adya does yeah. on Wednesday night. Yeah. so people can subscribe on adyashanti.org to be notified whenever there's going to be one of those Wednesday night things, and, and sometimes it's you. Do you have any other kind of newsletter or anything else that you keep in touch with people with?
1: Yeah, I'm part of the Open Gate Sangha newsletter and um, website, and and it's be great to check out the website. You know, there's lot, there's like a a great guide. I mean, a lot of people have liked this guide of meditation I've done. It's free on there called Let Down and Let Be. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of clips and yeah, you of know, you free satsangs songs, yeah. and and then there's the Indian internet show that you know is free and. I know I'm going to be on sometime later this fall. So just have fun on there. There's a lot to explore, and um, we're working on stuff all the time to add to that. We've got some exciting stuff coming out in
0: the future too. Great. Okay. And regarding uh, Buddha the gas pump, it's you know, the website for that is batgap.com, b-a-t-g-a-p, and there's all kinds of things there too. 250 previous interviews and they're all under the past interviews menu they're all categorized in different ways alphabetical chronological and so on there is uh, the future interviews that are upcoming are announced under the future interviews tab as well as some other stuff look under the about us tab you will see some things there's a, a donate button that I appreciate people clicking which makes this thing possible and um, we've started putting ads on YouTube I kind of apologize for that because those are annoying but there's a need to monetize this a little bit more. BatGap is a nonprofit organization registered as such in the U.S., but the donations are appreciated. There's a place on BatGap to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. There's a discussion group which has its own little section for each interview, so there'll be one for this interview. And there's also an audio podcast, and there's a link to that with every interview, so you can subscribe on iTunes or whatever to listen to the audio of these interviews so thanks a lot for wow. listening or watching thank you again Mukti oh you're so welcome It was so fun yeah great fun and mm-hmm. we'll see you next week next week is Barbara Marks Hubbard so that'll be fun too so thanks